What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the premiere episode of Cap vs. the World. I'm your host, Captain Obvious. And I thought the perfect way to kick off this inaugural episode is to basically just go into what made me me. Now, buckle your seatbelts. It's a pretty bumpy ride. So my mom and dad divorced when I was two years old. Okay, so I basically had to split my time between my mom and my dad's house. Now, I would see my dad on the weekends, and we always had a lot of fun. But he lived in a predominantly black area. Okay, so I grew up in the projects in the Bronx. Now, I also lived in the Bronx with my mom, a little more diverse. But in my dad's neighborhood, I think there was only three white kids growing up. Okay, my nickname was literally White Boy. That was my nickname. All my friends were black or Hispanic. Uh, but it was great. You know what I mean? There's no... I don't have a racist bone in my body. But it's important to know that because... As I grew up there, I would be bullied and picked on and just, just for the color of my skin, you know, just, just for being, just for being white. I'd have a lot of people who, anytime I had anything new, new pair of sneakers, new jacket, they would try to steal it from me. They'd try to fight me for it. They'd say, you don't, you know, you don't deserve that, whatever. I literally fought every single day of my life at my dad's house and I learned how to fight. And I learned how to defend myself. And so when I would go to my mom's, we eventually ended up moving to a nicer neighborhood. When I would go to my mom's house and then go to school, I would just be aggressive. I would fight. I would pick battles with anybody because that was, that was what I had to do. That's what I grew up doing was fighting. And I was bad. I get pulled out of school. My, my mom had to go in a lot. Uh, my dad would go in occasionally, but he was one of those people. He'd be like, you know, he, he'd give you that secret, like pat on the back on the, on the, the side like you know good job as long as you got him like he was he was that kind of guy but I got into a lot of trouble I got into a lot of trouble and uh, I had this aggressiveness in me but before we had moved with my mom uh, she had married my brother's dad so I was about five or six when they got married and he was really abusive he was two completely different people when he was sober he was the nicest guy in the world I mean super nice would get you anything you want when he was drunk he turned into this villain literally this this super villain okay and i don't know if any of you guys have ever had a handgun put to your head i'm talking about pressed up directly into your head i've had it over 10 times i lost count after 10 times i had russian roulette played on me three times i was i was under nine years old i was somewhere between six and nine and this dude would get drunk and he would beat the shit out of my mom. I'm talking about beat the shit out of my mom. Okay, so he was five. I was five when he when he when they met. They had my brother by the time I was six. And I would stay up late and I'd have to hear the noises. But I didn't want my little brother who was in his crib to hear it because we shared a room. So I would cover his ears. So instead of being able to put the, my hands over my own ears to stop the noise, I'd cover his. You know, I know he was an infant. He probably would have forgotten, but I didn't know the you know, what stays with you, what doesn't, what memories you have. At the time, I didn't realize that about babies, you know. So I unfortunately had to do that. And I did this for years, for years and years and years. When my brother was sleeping, I would just cup his little ears and tears would just be streaming down my face as I listened to my mom get beat. And then a couple of times, you know, I had to use the bathroom really bad. I didn't want to just wet myself. I was thinking about it. I would walk out to go to the bathroom and he would hear me. 
and he'd fucking drag my arm and he'd pull my arm into the into the living room and in front of my crying mom who was usually bloodied and beaten he would uh, he took a handgun and he put it right in my skull and he'd say things like you know is this what you fucking want is this what you want me you want me to kill him right now and let me just tell you that that shit fucks with you and i already had the anger from you know from from fighting it at a very very early age i remember i mean i remember i was 5 years old getting picked on you know, getting pushed by the other kids and, and, and things like that. This isn't, we're not talking about like even older, you know, we're not talking about like a 12, 13 year old yet having aggression. We're talking about a kid who is five or six being raised to just fight and everything around him, right? So I would have to lie to my dad. When I would go to my dad's on the weekends, I'd have to lie to my dad. And my mom used to use a lot of makeup, you know, to cover up. Sometimes her face was really swollen, but she actually was somebody who used to suffer with her teeth. So she used to actually get really bad infections in her mouth. So that was always a cover story and people believed it because it was actually something she had even before my stepdad came into the picture. Um, And I remember one time I slipped up. I don't remember what I said. I said something to my dad uh, that hinted that my stepdad was doing this to my mom and he called CPS. And then CPS became a huge part of my life. They would do constant wellness checks. They'd I'd have to sit, they they would come to the house, right? My stepdad would always not be there. He'd always, you know, they'd always say he was working late. Uh, he actually laid carpet for a living. That's what he did. He was he worked at a carpet place. So he was able to get away and say, you know, he had late jobs or he was doing office buildings and things like that because they always wanted to interview him. And then they'd end up doing it on the phone when he was sober during the day rather than see how he was at night. But anyway, so these CPS people would come to the house and I'd sit on my bed and they'd be talking to me, uh, asking me questions. And I'd have to just sit there and lie to him my mom used to cry before these agents came over and she used to put her hands on my shoulder and rub my head and be like honey please you know this they'll take you away from me and i didn't i didn't want to be away from my mom you know it's not something i wanted i didn't want to not have my mom in my life i would just lie and i would say you know whatever positive thing i could say to whatever question they asked me the most positive you know and uh that that's what i did for a while and then every time cps would come my mom would not let me see my dad. She wouldn't let me go to my dad's house. She would punish him, which in turn punished me for a couple months at a time, sometimes two, three months. They were a- he, She was able to do that because my dad never paid child support. They never went to court uh, over that. Um, when they got divorced, it was handled, and then they would just they said that they would just work out, you know, custody or whatever. Because um, my dad was a cab driver, he made like one year he made like eight grand the whole year. My mom was a, uh, a secretary for years. I mean, she was making like fifteen to twenty thousand. So that, I mean, I I grew up not very you know in a in a very rich house. You know, I had my grandma, who was the only grandparent I've ever known. She would help out with my mom. Like she would buy me. That's when I was talking about like the new shoes and stuff. That would come from her. But it's not like you know I was sitting there rocking the newest the newest anything. You know, I got hand me downs. Like my I had clothes from my uncle. I mean, this is he's like twenty four years older than me. I had clothes that my grandmother had saved to his that were from like, you know, the 60s and 70s that I, I used to walk around in because we couldn't afford clothes. But uh, yeah, so that was that was that was rough. Well, that was rough when my mom would uh, would do that to me. But like I said, my dad couldn't afford to pay child support so that she was always really understanding with that. He would give what he could, but it wasn't like an agreed upon amount. So when it came time for me not to go, you know, go to his house, she would just keep me. She'd be like, you know, you don't pay. You don't have a right. And he wouldn't fight it. I don't know why, but he wouldn't fight it. 
And this went on for a few years until uh, about, I was about 10, 10 and a half. And my mom finally decided to leave him because what happened was my stepdad would occasionally kidnap my brother and just go away for a weekend. And we would never know if he's going to come back. So the cops were always called. He was always in and out of jail. And then she would, you know, not press charges. And uh, this became like a cycle. And then one time he took my brother uh, and he ended up going to, I think it was Pennsylvania. Yeah, I believe it was Pennsylvania. I know he had stopped through Pennsylvania, so I don't remember if that was the final. Let's just say Pennsylvania. It's a little it's a little hazy, but he he had crossed state lines and he was away for about a week, and my mom couldn't find him. And then he uh, he ended up calling. She had gotten the cops to where he was, and they arrested him. and And that was that was the final straw. Like that was when she was like, you know, I I can't do this anymore. So she got restraining orders. She ended up telling my whole family, you know, they had suspected. Everybody was asking me and I would always lie and make it up. And there's all kinds of excuses. Uh, She got hit with a doorknob or she tripped. Just all kinds of things that you would imagine for why her face looks the way it does and things like that. And, you know, I was, I was at school. It was just, it was really affecting me between, you know, when I would go to my dad's house and I, and I'd have to fight every day, just playing in the, you know, playing in. The area around there. See, back in those days, like, even if I was like eight or nine, my dad would just be like, you know, you can go outside and play because he could see me from his will, uh, window, right? Like, you can, you know, see me playing in the little lot that was in the, the property. And uh, so he could watch me, but, you know, he wouldn't be there for the interactions. Like, he was, you know, upstairs so he could visually, he could see me visually, but he wasn't there to, like, hear all the words and stuff. And, uh, you know, it was, it was rough. So between both of those, this anger was just building and building and building. So my mom finally left him. Uh, and then I was about 12 and he had stopped drinking. Uh, but he was doing drugs, which we didn't know at the time. And he wanted to make amends, right? So I remember he showed, he hadn't seen, he hadn't seen my brother in, in about a year at this point. And because, uh, you know, he's putting himself through rehab and all this stuff, but for alcohol, like he was. And then I guess he came out and started doing drugs, but he showed up at my house and he wanted to see my brother. And my mom was there and she's like, he can't come in. So, and I was a little bit bigger at this point. I actually was one of these, I grew very early in my life. Like I've been the same height that I am now since I'm like 13 years old. So when I was 11, I was already like mid five foot, like five, four, five, five. And uh, I'd started working out from a very early age. So obviously I'm not as strong as a grown man, you know, he was six one, but I wasn't like this little tiny kid anymore, you know? So, uh, and he was somebody who was trying, he was very apologetic because at, at this time he was sober and he was crying. I remember he's a grown man. He literally dropped down on his knee and he's crying to me. He's like, I'm so sorry. You know, all this stuff, please. I want to make it better. And he had tickets to WrestleMania 10, the rewind. So not WrestleMania 10 itself, but the rewind was at Madison square garden. It was either called the Rewind or the Remix. Whatever. It was like the week after WrestleMania. And I used to I used to love wrestling, right? It was like my escape. Wrestling and video games. Uh, and he's crying, he's crying, he's crying. And I remember looking him dead in the eye when he was on his knees. And I was like, if you hurt her, I will kill you. And he's like, you know, I'm not going to hurt her. So I went inside. I, you know, I told him to wait there. I went inside. My mom uh, said my brother could go. And he also had a ticket for me. He also had a daughter from by another lady. So I had a stepsister. She was a horrible bitch. But <laughs> I didn't really see her too often because her mom would have her on the weekends. I'm sorry. She stayed with him on the weekends and I would be, usually be with my dad's. 
So I, I never really saw her. So she'd be at her mom's all week. But anyway, so all, all four of us went. My stepdad, me, my brother, my stepsister. And I ended up sleeping over his house. And it was great. Like, you could tell he was trying to kiss my ass. He was buying me everything. I, what did I get? I got one of those championship belts. Uh, he bought me, at the time, Ultimate Warrior was big. I got, like, the the Warrior bands. It was all kinds of cool stuff. And I got the Bret Hart glasses. Uh, we had a great time. Dropped me off. A week later, we get a phone call. My mom just drops the phone in tears. My stepdad had overdosed and he died. I was happy. Because even though I had a good day with him, I, it, I remembered what he did. I remembered everything. But then I was also sad for my brother. So me and my mom were downstairs in the living room. My brother was upstairs playing video games. He was like six at the time, something like that. So I remember she's like, can you please go get your brother? And she's like shaking and crying as she's saying this to me. So I go upstairs and I said, uh, his name is TJ. I say, TJ, you got to go downstairs, man. Uh, Mom's got to tell you something. And I remember just shutting my door and laughing. And I felt bad. I feel bad now. At the time, it was this release that I needed. I was like, oh, my God, he's finally gone. Like, he's not going to do anything to my family anymore, you know? He's not going to be able to play this game where he's, you know, he's he's good one minute, he's not the next. He's, and it was, it was the release that my mom needed because she would have always been attached to him, obviously. You know, she had a kid with him. She would have had to see him at events. Who knows? He might have even weaseled her way fully back into her life. He was just that kind of guy. But he died. And I remember that was the last week I ever went to. I'm necrophobic, so I can't be around dead things or dead bodies or anything. So I remember going to that one. That was the only time in my life that I've ever been okay to wake. And I remember walking up. There was a whole room full of people. And I looked at him. I got real close. I guess people thought I was kissing his cheek. And I spit right on his cheek. And I was like, fuck you. Can't hurt me anymore. Can't hurt my mom. And uh, it was like... One of the happiest moments of my life. As disrespectful as that sounds, it was something that was amazing. You know what I mean? It was just, it was it was fantastic. So now I'm like 12, 13, and I'd go to my dad's house every week, and it was just non-stop. Now I'm bigger. You know, now it's like the fighting is even, has picked up even more. I mean, I have friends. It's not like I'm just sitting there. I have a lot of friends. But there's just people who raised in hate. You know, and regardless if you're white, black, Spanish, whatever you are, there's hate for another group. And when and not from, you know, not from me. I Like I said, I could care less what you are. If you're a cool person, we're cool. If you're not, you're not. You know, I didn't grow up, I didn't grow up mega rich. But, you know, my parents did the best they could. So it, for me, it was never like, I never had this like I'm better than you attitude. It was never about that. But there's still a lot of people who just don't like people because of, of the color of their skin. And it's on every side. You know, there's, I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who make it out to be, you know, one side hates one side more. It's not true. There's a lot of hate on every side. It's just hateful people that we got to eliminate and hateful mindsets. But, uh, I would go to my dad's and I, there are times I didn't even want to leave because now, you know, now as I'm older, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out with older kids and there's older kids approaching the fights are going from, Little fights, so now there's weapons. So that that's the neighborhood that I grew up in. It was fights all the time. It was fights just all the time. And it wasn't just about color. It was, it was a lot of shit. It was stupid shit. You know, I am proud, though. I've never started a fight. I never start. I finished fights, but I never started a fight. Because fighting sucks. Anybody who tells you differently, they're lying to themselves. Nobody wants to fight. Nobody does. You either fight because you're scared... 
or you fight because you have to prove yourself. You don't fight because you want to fight. That's that's not a thing. You know, you hang out with the wrong people and they, you know, they make you fight. You have to, let's say, I'm not, I wasn't in a gang. That's not what I'm getting at. But I'm saying, let's let's say you're in a gang and you have to fight a rival gang. You have to because you're in this group. Now you have to prove to your quote unquote family that you're one of them. So you got to fight people that you may not even dislike. You may just be faking it. And that that's just not right. So nobody wants to fight. So once I was about 15 years old, that was it for me. I was like, I'm, I can't go visit my dad anymore. Like there, like I, you know, I, I was, uh, I was able to see him and we would go like hang out, but I stopped going to his house to sleep over. So, you know, we'd go out for dinner, we'd go to movies, we'd go to events, he'd take me to shows and stuff, but that was it. Like there's no more. Cause at this time I was working You know, I got a job when I was 14 years old and I would do like bagging in a grocery store. I was like a bag boy. I would deliver newspapers. I would do it in the snow time. I would literally go around, you know, I, anything I can do to make money, I did. And back then, all you needed was like working papers and parents to sign off. And, you know, you could pretty much do any, they don't really hire underage now. You know, this is like what, 23 years ago. They don't really hire too much underage now because there's so many restrictions, a lot more than there was back then. And, uh, you know, so I was able to do whatever, cashiering at a grocery store, bagging, anything I could get. I worked at a gas station. I was, you know, wiping cars for car washes. So I'd help out and I'd chip in with my dad. And he actually had gotten a, a better, uh, he was still a cab driver. He was always a cab driver. But he, he had gotten a, a job with a more respectable company who was giving him better, you know, customers and clientele. And he was in a nicer area. So he was getting more tips. So at this point, he was actually uh, making more money. And so I went, I ended up going at this point, I'm, I'm actually in a private school. So I went to a, a private um, preparatory school because I knew I wasn't going to make it in, in public school. I, and my, my school was all, all boys. It was an all boys school because, you know, I was, I was starting to get too distracted by the ladies. I remember in eighth grade, you know, I went to a, a Catholic school and girls had dresses and, you know, you're a boy, you're a gross boy growing up and puberty is hitting you and. As you're walking up the stairs, you're trying to look up the girl's skirts. And it's, I remember my options were I had a full scholarship to a very nice school that was kind of close to my dad's house. Right? It, was, it, was, it wasn't like a public school. It was like a, a Catholic high school, but it was still in a really shitty neighborhood. Or the school I really wanted to go to, which was this prep school, which was insane amounts of money. Uh, and... My mom ended up lucking out because since my stepdad, remember I told you he was a, uh, he laid carpet, he was in a union. She got his pension and what I think she got something from social security up until I was 18. So my half, her half of my high school was paid for. The other half was between me and my dad. My dad was like, if you want to go to this school, you're going to have to help me. I can't come up with this half on my own. So I'd work a lot. I do all of these odd end jobs, right? Anything I could because I really wanted to go to this school. And I had to wear a suit jacket. And I was still this aggressive kid, but I was starting to like be around kind of a nicer group of people. You know, still all ethnicities. My school wasn't like, you know, milky white. It was everybody. But it was everybody who had money or who came from money. And this was something new for me. The only reason I was able to go is because my stepdad died. My mom got a nice chunk of change. And my brother was still going to regular school at the time, like public school. So my mom was able to take his half and put it towards the school too. So my, my stepdad ended up giving back, but you know, this, this took me out of what I was in all the time, which was constant fighting between 
school or listening to it at home or fighting at my dad's house to a more structured environment. And I got in trouble a lot because it still ran my mouth a little bit, but there was a lot of rules. There was a lot of rules and it was hard. It was, you know, college level stuff and it was hard as hell, but it, it gave me a nice structure. So there was, I think 147 of us, I don't know why that number sticks in my head, who started and only 53 kids from my class ended up graduating because it was hard. Kids either failed out, they couldn't afford it or whatever, other reasons, you know, a couple of kids died, they, they were in you know, car accidents. The one thing about that school was because there was money, there was drugs. A lot of driving deaths in my school. Some from, like I said, a few from my class, but a lot from like other classes too. So it was it was bad. But at the same time, it was good because of the structure, you know, but the drugs were just flowing there. So now I'm in high school and I'm kind of calming down and I, I, I think I know what I want to do with my life. But at the same time, I was just... I was just going through this really bad depression. It was it was weird. It was like this this really weird conflict within myself. Like I was just I knew what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how to go about doing it and I didn't know if I was good enough to do it. And I had a lot of things to distract me. So I had I played football, I played lacrosse, I played baseball. I had jobs because I moved out of my house when I was 17. So, you know, I had I had to pay rent. So I had three jobs. I was like not sleeping and the times, the, the few moments that I would get to actually lay down, I hated those moments. I hated being by myself. I hated my thoughts. I hated my hated who I was. And when I was 18 years old, I took my dad's gun and I wrote a note and I was in my apartment and I was going to kill myself. I had the gun up to my head, ready to go. It was loaded and it was just, it was bad. And my friend Jen called. She was like my best friend. Amazing, amazing girl. Literally, I'm holding the gun. Guys, I promise you, I was two seconds away from doing it. It was going to be done. And the phone rang. And when I saw her name, I remember I was holding my breath. And when I saw her name, I was like relieved for a minute. I was like, oh, maybe this is a sign. And I pick up the phone. And she's like, what's going on? You know, she was trying to message me before. And uh, I couldn't. Like, phones were literally just coming out. Like, it, not everybody had them. It was like, it was, you know... It was a big deal if you had one. So we both had one. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm just uh, just hanging out. I'm not, uh, I'm not really in the mood to do anything. And she was just, I remember these words. She was just like, listen, if you need anything, I'm always here for you. I love you. And I was like, thank you. And as I said, thank you, tears were streaming down my face. And I hung up the phone. And I remember breaking down. I'm thinking about it right now and I want to cry. Like, I remember breaking down. I had a moment. I just broke down and put everything down and it's like my body was like like it was able to breathe and I was like you know what I can't do this because then I started thinking about everybody else and you know all the shit I'm going to leave behind and then I started realizing that a lot of my issues were self-inflicted meaning like and you people may disagree with me and that's perfectly fine but when you're depressed it's it's honestly a lot of you basically it's it's basically a lot of you 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 you're basically very selfish and very self-centered. You're, if you actually listen to, to people who are depressed, dog, it's, it's what it is. Like, you know, I still have social anxiety pretty bad. But social anxiety is a very selfish thing. You think as soon as you walk into a room, everybody's looking at you. You, you, you. It's all about you. It's very self-centered, you know. And I started recognizing parts. I really started diving into myself right at that moment on. And I started recognizing 
pieces of me that I did not like, that I needed to change drastically. One of them was trying to please everybody because I'm fiercely loyal, but I demand a lot in return. The same thing. It's on my whole life is one code. It's all about respect. I don't get the respect. I will drop you. I don't care. It's just who I am. It's, it's my wall, but that's the way I am. It's not if, you know, if I do for you, you got to do for me. It's about respect. That's it. Meaning I do something, you say thank you. You don't ever take it as I got to do this for you. But it's about appreciation and respect because I'm the same way. I don't care what it is. I don't care if I've said thank you a million times for the same thing. Thank you. Wow, that's awesome. You hold the door for me. Thank you. Little things, but they add up. That's what my world is about. So... I started recognize people that were using me. I started recognizing just things that I were doing outwardly that I just did not like about myself, you know. And I would I would say a lot of things to spare people's feelings when it really hurt me. When it really hurt me, and that's when I was like, that's when I shut everything off. That's when I was like, you know what? I can't do that shit anymore. I'm not gonna sugarcoat crap just because you you know your your feelings may make it hurt when my feelings are now I have to sit there with this. No. I'm not going to have that burden while you get to walk around free. It's not happening. From that moment on, that was that was basically when Cap was born. That was when I went from being Sean to being Cap, even though I hadn't given myself this, this moniker yet. And basically, it just means I'm the captain of my life. That's what it is. Captain of my life, Captain Obvious, means I point out the obvious shit that needs to get done. That's where all of that shit came from. That's where that whole mentality came. And I literally changed the whole way I thought. I went from being depressed to being like, you know what? I can do this. And I started doing these little self-affirmations and I started looking up quotes and I started, you know, things that motivate me. Some people think it's, it's you know, it's horse crap and that's cool. Everybody has their own mechanisms for coping. Everybody has their own mechanisms for getting started. And that, those are mine. I like those positive affirmations. It just, it reminds me that, you know what? Yeah, shit is going to be okay. But you got to take the world the way you want to do it. Don't do it for anybody else because it's not going to work. You got to do it for you. And, you know, then I went through the whole thing with my kidneys, right? Just to finish off everything. I went, you know, 29 years old, I got diagnosed and it was like a fucking ton of bricks because I was somebody I told you I played all sports my whole life. Even, even after, and obviously this wasn't really necessary to the story, but even after high school and, and college, me and my friends would still get together every Sunday whenever we could and we would play just to stay active, stay together, you know, but I was an active person. So 29, I get this diagnosis and they're like, within five years, your kidneys are going to fail and you're going to need a transplant. Hit me like a ton of bricks. I'd never really been sick. My immune system was super strong, but my body was attacking itself. And I had to have this biopsy just to confirm it. And the kidney biopsy was horrible. It was the worst. I'm not going to go into full detail because that's, you know, some people don't like that gross, gory shit, but it was horrible. One of the worst experiences of my life. And then uh, in 2014, my kidneys failed. I was working a lot. I was I was a store manager for Walmart at the time, and I was opening up a new store in Pennsylvania. I live in New York, so for the entire month of February, I was gone. I didn't see my, my wife, my son, because uh, I was away. I had a, you know I was working 18 to 20 hour shifts, and they would put me up in a hotel that was like two blocks away, and then I would just do just because we were we were you know, building this Walmart and it was going to be mine. I was going to get a new one. It was, and I woke up one day and I could barely see. I couldn't even know my, my head was killing me. But it was like, if you've never experienced a blood pressure headache, you're lucky. It's it migraine on acid. And uh, my head was, I mean, sensitive to the touch everywhere. 
it was like it was like somebody took an air pump and filled up my head and uh i remember going into the pharmacy because you know they had those little like blood pressure machines and again store's not open yet this is just behind the scenes put my hand in and it said 211 over 191 and i was like i'm about to have a motherfucking stroke holy shit and i knew it and tears started streaming down my face i knew right then and there what it was because you know i go get checked up every couple of months and i actually had missed the previous appointment so it had been like four or five months since my last checkup at this point and i knew it so i remember uh telling my boss and he's like cursing at me i'm like you, you could fire me right now i gotta go to the hospital and i ended up driving all the way down almost two hours back to new york with blood i, I could barely see and i had my wife on speaker and the whole time like i'm crying she's crying and i'm like yo this is not gonna be good and we walk in I get taken care of, and I remember this bitch of a doctor. I'm waiting for the result. She literally opens the door, holding a clipboard in her hand, and she goes, oh, "I don't want to." I still to this day get fucking aggravated thinking about it. And she's like, "Oh, uh, the reason that your blood pressure's up is because your kidneys failed, and you need a transplant." And then shuts the door. That's it. No explanation other than that. No, here, here's what we're gonna do from there. And I ended up leaving the hospital because I was like, I can't, I can't be here. This was like a, it was like just like an ER hospital that's right near me. Like the quickest ER, closest ER. I just wanted to be here in case all my family had to visit me. Like I, I could have went to the hospital up there, but you know, I wanted, I knew my family the way they are. Everybody's going to want to see me. So I figured let's make it easy for them. So we, we go to the hospital in the city that when I originally got diagnosed, I had looked up while Cornell in New York City. It's not that it's only like 20 minutes for me. I think they're rated number two in the entire world for kidneys, right? And for, you know, transplants and stuff. Went there. Amazing. They took care of me. Amazing people. I ended up getting a, I ended up getting a tube put in my stomach. Because there's two types of dialysis. There's the blood where they can go in through, you know, flush your blood. Or there's a cat. Everybody has a cavity in their lower right side. Uh, it's called the peritoneal cavity. And what they end up doing is they stick a tube in there. Okay, there's a tube and I had a tube coming out of my stomach that I had to change, you know, like how to clean it daily to make sure I didn't get infected. And then they give you these bags of it's like a solution and you pump it through your body and you have to let it dwell. It means you have to let it sit in your body for anywhere from six to 12 hours and then you drain it. Uh, so basically I would do home dialysis, right? Like three times and there's different levels of the bags. That's why I said like it's either like I'm sorry, not six, four, eight or 12 hours. There's different strengths of the bag. And it all depends on how you're feeling. So, and it would hurt. It, it, there was a suction. When it would drain, it was a suction. And it hurt every day of my life. And it was so painful. Because basically, picture a suction inside your stomach. Not in, near your stomach. It's not your stomach. It's your cavity. Oh, my God. It would hurt. And I I remember whenever I would go to the clinic, the dialysis clinic. Because I'd have to go in for checkups and things, you know, still. Even though I was doing it at home. I remember asking one of the ladies. She had four kids. And I was like, how does this compare to childbirth? She's like, I would rather have a hundred children then do this dialysis every day. She's like, childbirth is, you know, one day, even though you're going through all the pains throughout your, throughout your pregnancy. She's like, it's nothing like that. And it's, it's a really sharp pain. So I don't say this to, to compare. I'm just trying to give you an idea that this is somebody who had, and I had other women who tell me that same thing. It's just, it's a constant sucking pain inside it for, you know, three to four times a day. It's just, it's awful. It's awful. So I did that for six months of my life and I was starting to get weak and I couldn't lift my head up. 
And then my mom finally got approved to be my donor because I had people from across the country. My family had set up a GoFundMe that raised $80,000. I had people from all over the country who were getting checked to see if they could donate to me. It was like the most humbling experience of my life. It was something that I'll never be able to repay. You know, it's, I would wake up crying. I'd go to bed crying, thinking about like, I don't deserve this from people. Like I'm, I'm not a good person. You know, like, I mean, I am a good person, but like, you know, I'm just, I don't know, hard to think about uh, without getting emotional. But my mom, my mom was approved and we had the transplant. When I went for my follow-up, my doctor told me I would not have lasted another month because I, like I said, I couldn't even, when the day that I had to go to the hospital, my uncle and my dad had to basically walk me in and carry me in because I had no more strength. None. I was like, I was done. And I had the transplant. Oh man, I remember that wake waking up. It was like a new life. It was fan. It was. It almost felt like when I decided to put that gun down. It was like a new lease. It was like my third chapter of my life. You know, uh, it was like the post kidney transplant chapter of my life. And that was that was incredible. You know, it was incredible. And you start to you know you have these feelings of like why me? Like what the hell did I do? You know, like I don't smoke. I barely drink alcohol. I drink I drink maybe one or one or two beers during football season. Not a day or a game, like the whole season, you know. And I'll occasionally have a drink here and there with, you know, with some friends. But I'm not a drinker. I don't smoke. I haven't done drugs since I was like 19 years old, you know. So it just it makes you. And I was healthy, you know. I was working out a lot at the time, and uh, it makes you go into this this spiral, you know. And I, I came out of it like I was happy to be alive, but at the same time I had this like, why me? Why me? And I started eating and eating and eating, you know. And I got to be. I wasn't like, like you saw me, I didn't have like this big, bigger gut belly. Like I, I'm just, I, I get big all over. So I'm just like, I, I just look like a husky dude. Like I never, I never wore anything higher than a 36 pants waist, you know, like, but I've always had these broad shoulders from working out. So like, it's just, it just, I just looked like a big dude, but never had a, like a big belly. Uh, so, you know, now I'm starting to get, just get back into working out and eating healthy and stuff, but you know, it, it takes its toll on you. That's why when I see all these people online, man, when they're talking about like their PTSD from one time, my whole fucking life is PTSD and I'm still here and I'm still kicking and I'm still not letting that shit get to me. You got to pull yourself out of it. Nobody can do it but you. I truly believe that. I know. And I know everybody goes through their own shit. I know that. I'm not sitting here saying that I'm not downplaying anybody's stuff. But what I'm telling you is I've reached, I was at the lowest of the low. I had shit where I could have died so many fucking times and I'm still here. You got to pull your head out of your ass. You got to stop the pity party. You got to stop using everything as a fucking excuse. People love that. People love to take anything that they can as an excuse and use it. Own up to your shit. When I do something bad, I own up to it. Just fucking own it. I always know my role in something. I'm never I'm never 100% innocent in any time there's like a disagreement or you, nobody ever is. But I'm not going to sit there and, and pass the buck and, and fucking... No, you got to own shit. You know, everybody thinks that just because they, whatever, something happens in your life, everybody else now has to walk around you on eggshells and tread. Why? That's not, that's not their burden. It's yours. And you got to own it and you got to turn it into something positive. You know, all these mental health warriors and shit on social media. Listen, that's fantastic to be that way. You know, it's, it's nice to bring awareness to it and, and I wish more people would, but at the same time, that's not an excuse to just be a dick and say whatever you want and hide behind the umbrella of mental health issues. It's, it's just not. 
I don't fucking buy it. And there are people with some serious issues, you know, but going through hard stuff in your life and, and traumatic experiences and, you know, that's not a fucking reason. I'm sorry. It's not. And stop hiding behind it. You know, grow a pair, take ownership of your life and move on. But now you guys understand, like, I don't got time to pussyfoot around fucking words. You know, I've, I've almost lost my life several times. So forgive me if I'm not sitting here telling you how amazing everything you do is. Because that's, that's not what people need. There was a study, and I wish I can find If I can find it, I'll, I'll link it in, in the description. But there was a study years ago. I had seen it. Somebody had posted it on Twitter. And then I had looked at it. And they had given, I think it was 1,000 people. Yeah, it was like 2,000. It was 1,000 for one, 1,000 for the other. Where 1,000 people took tests under pressure where people were like berating them and telling them like about you need to you need to finish this quick you need to hurry up you know you're nothing and then another one where it was total silence the people who were berated huge huge difference in the average way higher than the people who weren't it's because everybody needs a kick in their ass everybody needs that the fear of somebody looking over your shoulder the fear of failure you need something If every single thing that you do in your life, whether it's at your job, whether you're a creator online, whether if you're just praised, you you do zero growing, zero. And I always promised myself when I got to social media, if I had any kind of pull at all, I wasn't going to sit there and kiss people's asses because I believe in everybody. I think anybody can do anything. I truly, I truly do. I just believe people don't have a lot. Most people don't have the desire or want or understanding of how to go about it, but you can all do it. You know, just you just got to find that shit within you. But no, if if somebody sends me uh, a video or a thumbnail, I'm going to tell them how it is. I remember I had this one person. I'll, I won't say his name. I won't embarrass him. I remember one time and, and, and I mentioned something uh, on a post that he had asked about. And then he had DM'd me and he said, you know, that shit hurt. Like, that's not, that's not what I wanted to hear. Again, not, I'm not giving people what they want to hear. You have... 25 people telling you how amazing you are and one person telling you, look, you could do a little better. I would always listen to that one person. Just my opinion. Everything I do, I'm critical of. I hate everything I do. After it's out, kick myself. Nobody's nobody's more of a critic on me than me. Nobody. I'm honest with myself. I don't sit there and ever think for a minute, oh my God, I'm amazing. I say it all the time. I'm always like, yo, there are people way better than me. I just know what works for me. I figured out what works for me to help me grow, help me continue to learn, and, and that's it. And I'm somebody who I'm going to stand by my own opinions. Doesn't mean I don't respect yours. I like the back and forth. But sometimes as soon as you start putting your opinions out there and then people attack them and then you start to defend yourself, they're like, oh, he's somebody who doesn't like other people's opinion. No, I'm just somebody who's going to defend mine. If you're going to come at me when I post an opinion, I'm going to come back at you. It doesn't mean I don't respect yours. It's called a conversation. There are people who don't get that, but you guys know how I am now. You guys know every, you know, the major parts. Obviously, I didn't go into detail. There's gruesome stuff. There's a lot of other shit, but some of the big temples in my life that made me the way I am. I'm battle hardened, baby. I, I don't got time to pussyfoot around. I don't got time for all these, you know, these fucking people on social media talking about how tough they are. That none of that shit matters to me. I don't give a crap. You put your fucking money where your mouth is. Dude, uh, you show me what your actions. I don't care. You know, anybody ever has an issue with me? Just let me know. We'll fucking set something up. You come to my house, I come to yours. We settle it like adults. No hard feelings. Unless you're a woman. I don't I don't hit women. But we settle it like adults. And we'll drink a beer afterwards. Water under the bridge. But you don't fucking... Nobody runs their mouth 
online and, and affects me. Like it doesn't, it just doesn't happen. You know what I mean? And you don't see me attacking people. I'll attack ideas. I'll attack things that are like somebody posts something. I'm like, oh yeah, I hate that kind of practice. Let me address it. I won't attack them. I'm attacking the practice. I'm attacking the thing that I hate. People internalize. I don't got time for that nonsense. If you think it's about you and it affects you, that means you want to change it. Or if you think you're that amazing, change that mindset too, because it's not true. You know, learn to be your own harshest critics. Stop hiding behind shit that's affecting you. Own the fuck up. And I, I know people hate that term man up, but I don't I don't mean it just because of being a man. I just mean I use it as like, even if you're a woman, just own your shit. Step up to the plate, own it. Okay, own it. Own everything about it. If it's if you put it out and it's garbage, say, you know what? That's a learning experience. Don't sit there and defend a piece of trash. There's stuff that you guys know that you post and that you do in life. And I'm not talking about just for creators, any aspect of life. Whether you're at your job, you know there have been times, because I've, I've done it a lot. I'd tell you that straight up. Where you only gave half your effort or whatever, and you know for a fact you could have did better. But then you defend yourself as if you as if you did it an amazing thing. I've done it. When I was younger, I don't do this shit anymore, but come on, own it. So you know what? You're right. I could have done better. I promise you guys, once you start changing your mindset, it's amazing. Once you unlock the fact that you're not perfect, once you unlock the fact that you're not as amazing as you fucking think you are, because you're not, nobody is. I'm not, but I also don't think I'm amazing. I want to get better each and every day. And that's what strives me to, to, to continue doing shit that I do. That's my motivation right there. Anyway, guys, till the next episode, Captain Obvious out. Peace.